Rick Madison, Rick and Friends, uh, thanks for listening. And uh, today I have a, a gentleman who's lived multiple lives. Uh, you'll you'll see when he starts telling a story. But and here's the beautiful thing: um, you're gonna go, no, that that cannot be true. It's actually true. Uh, he's he's lived a colorful life, and uh, proud to call him a friend. He's Dean Schlosser. Welcome to the big show. Thank you. So, Dean, um, we're gonna. We have so many stories we got to tell today. I mean, lots of stories. I don't know if I got that much <laughs> breath today, but we'll try. So, Dean, uh, first off, you run a company. Um, what's that one called? It's called DNF Welding. It's a pipeline construction and maintenance company that I started in 1984. Does okay. It's done okay, yeah. <laughs> um, and and you've you've been a you've been a welder. Uh, you know you've done a ton of stuff, but you've you you actually were working on on pipelines and then got off the tools, so to speak, and uh, and now you're you're happily residing in Kelowna. I am. Yep. I uh, make frequent trips back and forth to Saskatchewan, check out the business back there, but most of the time I'm in Kelowna now. So as a flatlander, did the mountains uh, scare you at all, like the, how high they were? Not at all. I spent a lot of time out here snowmobiling through the years. <laughs> um, so, Dean, let's let's chat a bit about, um, I, I, I really, there's so many stories I want to tell, so I'm in no particular order. Um, I want you to tell the story about how you came to drive uh, Dodge trucks, because, you know, again, we have so many stories we want to tell, but you drive Dodge. But you used to drive Chevy, so just tell me again what happened there, why you made the transition. All right, I'll let you know. I'll, I'll try and leave names out. I don't want to <laughs> be an enemy of anybody. Back in Saskatchewan, my company and myself, I always drove Chev trucks. And I had bought a, I'd bought Chev trucks from this one particular dealership for years. And I was looking for a new truck for a welding rig. And they couldn't supply it. They they ordered it and it didn't come, didn't come for months on end. And I was going on a snowmobile trip to the mountains. I stopped through a Calgary, stopped at a dealership there, and they had the exact truck I was looking for, so I had bought it and took it home. It had a it had a problem, motor with a motor problem. I took it down to the Chevy dealership to get the motor repaired on it. It was under warranty, it was only months old. And the dealership was mad at me because I didn't buy it through them and they told me they wouldn't fix it. So I'd called Oshawa, Ontario, and Oshawa, Ontario said that the dealer had to repair it. That's their policy. So I went back and I had told the dealership they had to repair it. And the dealership, they uh, said, yeah, we have to repair it, but it's going to be three months or longer. Well, this is after you bought like 50 vehicles from them already. I'm not 50, but I bought quite a few. Yeah, okay. Yes. So I, uh, I had had enough with that, and I didn't think it was right. So I went over to the Chevy dealership and traded my Chevys off, all, all on Dodge vehicles. And uh, to this day, I, I own mostly Dodge vehicles. I still have some Chevys, but I own mostly Dodge vehicles. And I uh, later on was looking in the paper, the local paper, and the, the Chrysler Dodge dealership. I put down the owner of the Chevy dealership as as their salesman of the month, and they had a full page of his face on <laughs> in the local paper. <laughs> that didn't go over very well. <laughs> I love that story because I mean, it just it speaks volumes. It's it's fantastic. Okay, so uh, we we covered the uh, the Dodge story, Dodge Chrysler story. Now let's talk about when uh, you were almost murdered. Oh, I don't, I don't know if I want to go there. <laughs> Come on, it'll be fun. I I own a place in Mexico, and I after I I got divorced a few years later, I had met up with a well, I'd met newer before, but we decided we were going to become closer than just friends, and uh, I asked her to marry me. I didn't spend a whole lot of time with her until after we got married and we started spending time. I realized there was a few issues. 
This all happened in Mexico. I owned a place in Mexico for many years, and she was Mexican. And we, we ended up getting married. And one night, I didn't want, there were some red flags. I didn't repay much attention to them because I, I really, really loved the girl. And I had, uh, one night we went out for dinner, and on the way home, she, she had had quite a bit to drink. I don't drink. She had quite a bit to drink. We were out with a, a friend of hers, and they spoke only Spanish. I didn't, I didn't uh, speak any Spanish at all, so I didn't understand well what they were saying. And then we left for dinner. We dropped her friend off, and we were on our way home. And uh, she kind of lost her mind. She started off by saying that I liked her friend more than her, and of course I denied it. They they were drunk. I got home and it just it escalated. No matter what I did to try and defuse the situation, she got worse and worse, and she just completely went crazy. She tore all my clothes off. She was trying to get a knife to stab me. She beat me up. Uh, yeah, I did everything I could to just to protect myself. I didn't want to hurt her. She told me that if I didn't didn't hit her or do something, she was going to hurt herself and have me locked in a Mexican jail. Oh my. I'm in I'm in Mexico. She's a Mexican. I'm a Canadian. I didn't know what to do, so I took her. I took her beating. I had no clothes left on. She tore them all off. I, after she finally tired out and she laid down, I got some clothes on, snuck out of the house, went to the security guards. Went to the security guards and uh, had them come down to the house to prove that I didn't do anything to her. They seen my house was destroyed, and they asked what I wanted to do, and I said, well, I'd like her out of the house, but I probably can't do that, so I want you to check me out of the gate and let the security gate. And I flew back to Canada the next day and filed for divorce. <laughs> <laughs> she did everything in her power to try and get knives and stuff to, to actually kill me. <laughs> so it was a, a two-year ordeal with the Mexican... Mexican uh, legal system to try and get out of a divorce or out of a marriage in Mexico. It wasn't the best time in my life. That's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you know, we always uh, get story time here with uh, with Mr. Dean, and I, I so appreciate it. Now, tell me, um, you're a certified diver. What what kind of certification do you have for diving? I have a few certifications. I have my open water, advanced open water, rescue divers, dive master, nitrox, and cave certified. So tell me, uh, you know, we could go on and on about how much cool stuff you've seen in, 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 the, in the water, but I'm really, I, I think listeners will appreciate if you talk about when, uh, when you dove into a cave and your instructor who wanted to make sure you were you were capable of, of escaping any kind of issue. What what a cave scenario was like and what he did to make sure that you were ready for whatever came. And and so people know when you dive into a cave, from what I know of what you've told me, it's it it can be dark in there. You're in a cave, uh, you know, and, and he didn't he pull your mask off and then muddy the water and like did a whole bunch like just tell the of what happened just because it'll terrify a lot of people in the training scenarios they try and make the worst case scenario when you're in a cave diving when you're doing your training i was trained by one of the foremost cave divers in the world he's he's world famous his name is steve bogarts anybody that's had anything to do with cave diving will know this guy but he was my my trainer and when you go in and do your cave diving, it's completely black in the caves. And you're you're on your own. You go in there. There's no coming up for air until you get to the entrance where you went in. It's not like you see in the movies where there's open spots. You can come up and take air in the caves. There's very few caves like that. It's completely submerged. So you can go in and do two, three-hour cave dives. You go in and come back out, and so you're completely submerged for two to three hours. So if you're an hour into the cave, you're an hour before you can come back to oxygen. So you have to be ready for any circumstance. So part of the training, they take you in there, and if you're diving with a partner, you pay attention. You don't ever have to look back. You swim along. You don't look back. You see his lights moving around because you have to use lights. It's completely dark. And you see his lights moving. If they aren't moving anymore, you have to 
you realize that maybe there's something wrong. You turn around and look, and if you, you lose a guy, you have to go back. All the time you follow a line, you're either laying a line or you're following a line, so you know your way back out. So what they do is, uh, in the training exercise, the guy behind, the instructor takes you and he drags you off the line, he drags you into a little secluded cave and he stirs up all the dust, which takes very little and the caves are so much silt in them. So you can't see anything. You can't tell whether you're upside down or it's right side up, sideways. You have to just watch the bubbles coming out of your mask, but you're completely blind. You can't see three inches in front of you and he says, stay there. And he says, until the other guy comes and finds you. And so the other guy can take a while before he realizes you're not behind and he has to check his way back down the line and see if he can see any place you might have went into and, and they have discovery. So you're sitting in this cave and you have no idea what you're doing and you're trying not to panic. You can't see anything and nobody's showing up for 20 minutes. <laughs> Finally, they come and save you. And then you're kind of shook from that and you kind of got to overcome it because you're, you're an hour into this cave. You, it's a long ways out, so you got to try and calm yourself down. And then you go in for a little bit longer and pretty soon, pretty soon your lights go out and you're completely in the dark and you, you got your eye on the line the whole time and you got to find the line so you know where you are. So you get down and you hold, grab, pull the line if you can find it. Now you search for it, get your fingers around the line and you make your way back out. And the only way you can tell what direction you're going on because you, in the dark you can lose your direction is you leave arrows on the lines to tell you what direction points the way out. They're pointed arrows, so you go until you find an arrow and you realize if you're going the right way or not. If not, you turn around and go the other way. So you're you're doing this, you're kind of a little bit panicked, and meanwhile it's all rock, so you got one hand just above your head to try and protect your head from hitting rocks as you're going along this line. And uh, next thing you know, he turns off your oxygen. You're diving with another diver. He turns off your oxygen and you have to, this other diver, when you're swimming out like this, the front guy has his arm up, the second guy has, has his arm holding onto the front diver's leg as you're making your way out. You gotta get his attention, you can't talk. You gotta let him know you need his spare re regulator. And you get that all worked out all this time, you've got no air. You get the spare regulator, and then you continue on out of the cave in this fashion. So you're in the dark, you're run out of air, you're sharing air, and you're going along, and all of a sudden you can't move anymore. You're kicking, kicking away, and you're not moving. The instructor has looped the line around your tank or around your fin or something, and you got to figure out why you're not moving. you got to try and untangle this while you're holding onto this other guy's leg, sharing his regulator <laughs> in the dark. <laughs> If you don't panic, you'll make it through, but a lot of people don't make it past that point. This is what the training for cave diving is like. It's not fun. So uh, you're an adrenaline junkie, hey? Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> is that why you have uh, different things? Uh, don't you have a steel plate or something in your in your body or something? Uh, they've been taken out all except for one in my finger. Oh, okay. <laughs> The rest have been removed. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, that that's the way you've always lived life. It's just like... Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's more fun that way. It's, <laughs> it's better than drugs. <laughs> but you're still alive to tell about it. That's, that's the key. Yeah, I'm partly here. <laughs> <laughs> so is, is, there, is there anything else left on your, on your list to do a bucket list, one could say, and, you know, anything you've, you've dove in these caves, you know, you've run successful businesses, uh, you've done a whole bunch of things. Is there anything still you want to encounter or see or? Really, really not. I've, I've lived a very full life. I've done everything I wanted and a lot more stuff that I never planned on doing. I just kind of happened into it. So I, I'm pretty satisfied with everything I've done in my life. I'm, I got no regrets. I get that sense from you, though. Like, you know, you've done it, you've seen it, you've you've gotten the ticket, you've gotten the T-shirt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the scars. <laughs> the scars. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the hotel fiasco. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Okay, yeah. so um, 
from what I glean from you, you built a hotel on your property for your men to to live in because Carrobert is not next to a lot of hotels, motels, I would imagine. And so you built this and then lo and behold, did you get a letter or phone call saying there was going to be a problem with this hotel? I had got a, actually had two people show up in my office one day telling me that I'd built this hotel too close to their gas pipeline. When I built the hotel, when you when you build something, you you do first calls. The first calls, they notify all the foreign crossings, whether it be gas, power, telephone, sewer, water, and uh, all the companies are notified by this one call system that's provided by the government and they, the, the utility companies, they come out and they check to make sure their lines aren't too close or even on property. So the, the, first, the one call was initiated, everything was done. I started building the, the people to come out and check their stuff. Some people just phoned and said, it's okay, it's not, it's not interfering with our, our lines or, or, or property, so you can go ahead and build. So we built the hotel and I was about 95% complete and two guys showed up in my office from this one particular pipeline company. And they said that I had to tear down my hotel. And I said, well, that's not going to happen. They said, it's too close to our, to our pipeline. I was 70 feet too close to their pipeline. It was supposed to be 300 or meters. It was three, supposed to be 300 meters. And I was within 270 meters of their pipeline or 230 meters. So they threatened me with a lawsuit and they told me I had to tear it down. And if I didn't tear it down, then I had to pay a fortune, 13 to $16 million to move their pipeline. I was liable for it. I said, well, that's not possible because I did all the proper procedures and everything else. And you guys were the ones that fell down on it. Pipeline company spent two years trying to do everything, threatened me with no work, and everything else because it was involved with another company I worked with and they threatened me I wouldn't have any more work if I proceeded or didn't tear down the hotel. And for two years they were they were at it and then they finally got to a point where they couldn't find any reason why I was in the wrong for the hotel. So in the end, the government, the National Energy Board was forcing their hand, they had to do something about it. So they ended up, the hotel wasn't even two years old. They ended up having to buy the property off me, the hotel, demolish it, and then sell me back the property. The deal was originally for $1, but I ended up splurging and giving them $10 to buy the property back. And they had to pay me for the, for the hotel and all of it. <laughs> That's how it ended up. But this is just a, a way these big companies step on the little guy. They threatened and they threatened and when it didn't work, they had to come guess, good for their problem. I guess you can't bully the uh, Saskatchewan welders very much, hey? <laughs> we're not smart enough to know we're wrong. <laughs> so uh, let's talk a little bit about the farming background because that's pretty interesting too. You you uh, you got bored, and one day you woke up and you had twenty thousand acres of land or something. It was a huge amount, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> but how does one work as a welder? Because I, I think you were working as a welder and farming and, and still, like, I don't know when you slept or anything else, but it seemed like you 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 just worked all the time. Was that kind of what happened? Pretty much. Pretty much. I, I would do most of the farming at night and I would go out and work full time on my job welding in the daytime. I was actually, I owned a company, I had many men working for me and equipment working for me, but I still welded every day in the ditch. And it was never a regular day. We always had extra long days. Very seldom we only went out there and worked nine hours. We'd go out there and we'd sometimes I'd put in shifts as long as 36 hours working in the mud and the water and doing tie-ins. And very dirty work and hard work, but it didn't didn't bother me. And then when I had time, when I got home, I'd, I'd maybe grab something to eat and jump on a piece of farm equipment and go farming. That's just the life I led for many, many years. I used to, my peace and quiet and my solstice was on my farm equipment. And it was all, it was all fun until it got, got big enough that it wasn't fun anymore. I turned a hobby into a corporate farm, which 
which wasn't what I initially started out to do, but I just didn't know how to not do it. So did, did, was there ever a point where, yeah, like one day you're, you're on a tractor at, I don't know, three o'clock in the morning and going, what have I done? Well, I don't think it was that. I think it was more of the family. Yeah. Like I could have probably continued on doing that forever because it was, it was my peace and quiet, but it, it was, it got in the way of family life. Mm -hmm. it definitely didn't get to spend as much time with my kids as I should, should have. And, uh, so I just, I had a, a local Hutteray colony. I was going through some surgeries. I'd busted myself up in snowmobile accident and I couldn't use my arm. So I kept a third of the farm and I rented, rented two thirds of it out to the Hutteray colony. And then when it come time after two years and they had all the steel taken out of my shoulders and stuff that they put me back together, I figured it was time to take over the farm again. And the Hutteray colony had different ideas. They figured they, they wanted the farm, so they ended up approaching me and asked me if they could take everything. And I said, well, let me think about it. A couple of weeks later, I said, yeah, as long as you move all the grain storage out of my yard, you take all my farm equipment and you take all the farmland, leave me with the home homeland and and uh, you can have it. One check, it's all done. I probably wasn't in the good books, a lot of my neighbors, because a lot of them want a piece of the land and they want pieces here and there that bordered their land. But I only wanted, I want simple, I want to mm -hmm. be done with it. One check instead of a hundred was, one trip to the lawyer's office instead of a hundred was, was the way I looked at it. So then I, I got out of farming. And that was when I decided I, I really needed a house in Kelowna. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I, I don't just get yeah. out of something, I get into something else. <laughs> Can't stop, won't stop. No. Uh, so do you miss farming? You know, I do on the good years. But then when you see a... We had a year in Saskatchewan, like last year, it was a drought. And, you know, I feel really bad for the farmers there and what they what they go through when that happens because it takes years for them to get back what they lost. And I feel bad for them at the same time I feel good for me. Right, yeah. It's kind of a, you're kind of torn on that. It's a catch-22, yeah. yeah. Have you heard about this discussion uh, about... Um, the current federal government trying to, uh, you know, they're reacting to the climate change. So they're, I think they're limiting the use of nitrates with, uh, with fertilizer. Do you know much about that? I know it's happening in countries in Europe. It's, they're starting to push it and, uh, we're starting to hear rumblings of it happening here in Canada. I don't believe anything's done, but in order to meet their impossible climate targets, this is one of the things they're going to probably implement. There isn't a whole lot of thought about it in our current federal government. They're kind of hell-bent on destroying everything Canada ever stood for with the energy sector and with the farming now. They, they won't be happy until they've destroyed all of Canada. That seems to be what their, the direction they're headed in. It, they go and they tout how natural gas is, is okay and it's clean and it's safe. Nitrogen is made from natural gas. That's the main ingredient in nitrogen. It's kind of a hard to make justification for either one of them. Natural gas is okay, but when it's made into fertilizer and runs off into the water, it's no good. And really, I don't know how most farmers act, but I can guarantee you there was none of my nitrogen ever run off into any water sources in the farm I had. And I can say for the same of the farmers in our country, that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen whatsoever. It'd have to be done purposely in order for it to do it. That isn't proper farming technique. You you just uh, made me think of a word, justification. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like yeah. He, he's literally uh, pushing this climate agenda, but then the hypocrisy of him flying around the country in his private jet and uh, making these, you know, so-called visits, it it does make you think. I, I don't think he's reading his own his own press because 
you know, it, if you're going to push a, an agenda and then do something else, it, it just makes you seem like a hypocrite. And it seems like that's what the, the government is. Oh, there's no doubt. Like, it's it's very obvious what's been happening in Canada the last five to six years. Canada's went so far backwards in that span of time, more so than any other time in history of the history of the country. And it can be attributed to the federal government's policies. Nothing else. Federal government's policies is what it's all attributed to. I've never seen anything like it. They won't be happy until the whole country's bankrupt. We're we're at a point right now where we're almost, if not, beyond the point of no return with our debt without really pushing our natural resources and it's gonna to have to be farmers on top of it all. You can't can't screw them over. There's there's that's our only savior in this country. There's nothing else can save us. I think the part that really comes to mind is having farmers pivot so quickly because you, when you have a, a resource or a, an expense and they're asking them to, you know, try something else and, and really modify their whole operation within a very short amount of time. I don't know many businesses that can pivot that quickly. You know, we're talking massive farms and and really make a go of it for business wise. I mean it if if you had a an expense which doubles triples overnight because you're told to do so I think it's pretty tough to make a to make a go of it. That's the other problem. Well, the thing is Canada, I'm not sure what is fourth largest grain producer, wheat producer in the world. Somewhere in that ballpark, but if you go and cut back on the nitrogen Automatically, it cuts back on the amount of used farmland. Like they'll have to go back to summer follow in order to grow crops. So it'll cut back on half the production of the crop that comes out of Canada. It cuts it in half and, and probably even beyond that because you use nitrogen even to do summer follow, just not the same amount. So it'd probably be less than half the production if they cut back on nitrogen, which, you know, in Canada, we're going to eat. There's a lot of the world that isn't going to eat because of it. You just can't do that. So let's talk a bit about the energy policy or the lack of. Um, one of the things, and, and it was you who told me this, and uh, if, if Canada were, was able to, to build pipeline to Tidewater, we would be able to at least help with the debt. Maybe not at this point pay off the debt, but help with the debt. Um, do those words still ring true for you? That oh, of course, of course, it's automatic. It's an automatic uh, twenty dollars a barrel more. The American all our all our oil is going through the United States. United States charges a premium on our oil of upwards of twenty dollars a barrel. If it goes to tidewater, it automatically throws twenty dollars a barrel on our oil. But not only that, but we haven't got pipeline capacity to. To ship all of our all of our oil. If we uh, if we could ship it offshore, right from our own shores, put pipeline capacity to both shores, we could move a lot more oil, which means a lot more in the, the federal government coffers to, to pay down our debt. As long as they're holding us against that, nobody wants to invest in Canada. Nobody wants to spend money in the oil field in Canada because. Our government is too unreliable in their policies. They don't know if they're going to shut them down tomorrow. They're going to take take a bigger share of what they're producing. There's so much other oil in the world that the policies don't dictate what they do and how much money they make or, or what their company's going to run like. It's only common sense. Where are you going to where are you going to spend your money? Not in Canada. Canada's policies are, and it's going to take years to bring the that investment back into Canada. Even then Canadian oil companies are investing outside of Canada because it's it's a more friendly, business-friendly environment. There was companies like in the Middle East that nobody wanted to touch because they were so risky. They're considered less risky than investing in Canada now. There's companies that are investing in Libya before they'll invest in Canada. It was unheard of 20 years ago. You know, it's interesting you brought up the fact that pipelines carry some of our product to Tidewater, but not enough to actually ship on any kind of volume. Mm -hmm. And uh, I especially love the story of how we, we had a tanker that sh sails from Burnaby, comes down 
through the Panama Canal and then goes up to the uh, Irvin refinery on the East Coast. And, and that, well, you know. Well, it wasn't even on the East Coast. It was in Quebec. It was in Quebec, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they have to come they up and around. They have to come up to the St. Lawrence. Oh. The St. Lawrence, the water body of all of Eastern Canada, basically. They bring a, a huge tanker all the way around to do that. And basically, it was completely and utterly ridiculous. It was a, Trudeau's attempt at pacifying both sides of Canada in regards to the energy policies. It was incredibly ridiculous. So that, that brings up a great point, which is uh, we have tankers going up and down the West Coast, going to Alaska, and you can see them. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, we seem to not, we have a, a pushback from different groups saying, no, no, we can't, we can't muddy the waters. We what if we have a, a spill or anything else? But, but a few kilometers off the shore, we have a lot of foreign oil going back and forth on the International Seaway. And it was you who told me that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how does that even work? So basically, we can't go through the inlet, but we can go. And I would assume it's kind of like having a non-peeing section part of the pool. <laughs> it yeah. just doesn't really work that way. No, no. Um, so what is that? What does that look like for Canada? Like, is it just because we have those international channel? And we're pushing back, and we have again uh, different groups protesting the fact that we're using tankers. But it seems odd to me and puzzling that we can have tankers just a few kilometers away from where we're not supposed to have tankers. Yep, it's it's hypocrisy in its greatest form. But it, it makes no sense. It's it's a, it, everybody wants to call it a conspiracy theory that that Trudeau is trying to ruin Canada, but. It's the only explanation for some of the policies they've come up with. Like the Eastern Coast, you can go down the Eastern Coast, like they got tankers coming up to St. Lawrence, but because they're coming in, foreign oil's coming in there, but we can't ship our our oil out of Canada. There's very little foreign oil that comes in on the West Coast anyway, but they're making a stand to try and appease both sides of the, of the Canadian energy. And it doesn't doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So they, they're they're got, capping our own production, but yeah. they, but but they're buying more foreign oil. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Like a, the majority of the oil that goes into the urban oil refinery in Quebec comes from Saudi Arabia. They have to bring those big tankers, some of the biggest in the world, down the St. Lawrence to feed the urban oil refinery. There's so many private companies in Canada that would build a pipeline to Quebec and beyond at their own expense instead of the Canadian government. Instead of the Canadian government goes and buys a pipeline for four times, ten times what it's actually worth. They're dragging their feet on actually building it. This Trans Mountain pipeline should have been built within a year. We're going on, I believe it's year three, three and a half. And I've talked to people who are working on it and they're claiming it's two more years to build. Plus, the they got to do the commissioning which they're claiming is going to take two years, which is utterly ridiculous. Private investment would have built that pipeline for probably by the time it's all done for one-fiftieth of the cost, at no cost to the Canadian taxpayer. None of it makes any sense whatsoever. So would you go on the record and say you doubt the Trans Mountain will will ever deliver a drop of oil while the current federal government is is in power? Well, I'd like to say I'm, I'm... not very wrong about a lot of things very often, but I'll go on the record saying that that TransCanada, as long as Trudeau and his government are in power, there'll never be a barrel of oil go down the new TransCanada line or Trans Mountain line. It won't happen. That's why they're dragging their feet. They're trying to hold on to power and they're working both sides of it, pretending they're actually building a pipeline that's going to pump oil and they're they're going to have their, they got their name on right now, but when it comes right down to it, I don't believe a barrel of oil will go down there as long as this current government's in place. Because you, and in, in you're speaking from experience, you've built pipelines. Yes. Like you know exactly how to build a pipeline, weld it, get it rolling. Like you've done all, yeah. all that. So, and in, in from your estimation, from your experience, you see the work that they're doing and how long they're taking. Is it taking like, an exponential amount of time for what it should 
take? Oh yeah, it's taken an incredibly long time. They they're looking at every every possible scenario to hold up the pipeline. They're dragging their feet in every aspect. The red tape is incredible. It doesn't have to be. Most people don't realize it, but they already have that right away. They already have a pipeline in the ground. They're laying it alongside. All the environmental stuff was done. There's nothing that should possibly hold up this pipeline. But in order to build that pipeline and take this many years to build it, it's, it's completely ridiculous. It can be built by a private company inside of a year. It might take another six months to a year to commission it, but we're we're looking at probably seven, eight years to build this pipeline that was that was bought for ten times more than it was actually worth. When they had a company that was willing to build that pipeline at their own expense, at no cost to the Canadian taxpayer. And the only reason they did that is so they could look like they're pretending to care about the Canadian energy sector by building a fake pipeline that's probably never gonna pump oil as long as this federal government's in place. So further to this, full disclosure, Dean and I worked on a project. Uh, it's canadasdebtsolution.ca. And, and what were you hoping to achieve with that film? Like, what were you hoping to, to get the message out? Well, I, I wanted to put it out there that we have all these protesters and people that are against the energy sector in Canada that really aren't educated enough to, to make even an opinion. They go by what the mainstream news puts out there, just sensationalizing stuff. That the Canadian pipelines, they do not actually educate the public well enough on, on the safety aspects of their pipeline. You gotta move oil, pipelines by far the safest, better than rail, better than boat, better than trucks. Those are the alternatives, we don't have a pipeline. The inspection programs I've been involved in, in I shouldn't say any names, but one of the major companies in Canada, I've been involved in their, in their uh, inspection programs for years and years. And it's an incredible amount of time and effort put into making sure the pipelines are safe. I can go on record with saying back 20 years ago, 25 years ago, even 30 years ago, pipelines had kind of a bad reputation because they didn't have the technology to inspect them like they do today. They can pick up stuff that isn't even visible to the naked eye, we go out and repair it before it ever becomes a problem. Because they know it can propagate. If there's a tiniest crack, even not visible to the eye, it can propagate and make a bigger crack and eventually be a leak. But they, they run tools down, these incredible accurate tools. They can pinpoint a spot. We go out and we dig it up right on that spot and find the anomaly and repair it. They couldn't do that in the past. They can now, it's very safe, very seldom we have leaks. If there is leaks, it's it's human error. It's a simple human error, like oh, leaving a valve open or things like that. Very seldom the pipeline itself fails. It just doesn't happen in this day and age. Some of the old pipelines and some of the companies that weren't doing their proper inspection, they have some problems. But the rules with the National Energy Board, and this is another thing, but uh, we'll get at it in a minute. The National Energy Board, their rules on pipeline and taking care of pipelines and making sure they're they're secure and safe is incredible. It's like nowhere else in the world are they they regulated the way they are in Canada. But the problem is that the pipelines don't put this information out there. These oil companies and they don't put this information out there how they're how they're saving and they're reducing their carbon footprint and how safe things are. They don't put it out there, and it's wrong. They honestly, they come along and they tell the farmers or farmers or the people who live in the cities or along pipelines, they come out. They used to have a public awareness program and even that's kind of fallen by the wayside, but they have people go out and they'd, in the summer and they'd stop at every place along the way and they'd drop off brochure and ask if there's any concerns and try and explain some of the aspects of the pipeline. But anybody that isn't along the pipeline they don't get educated on the fact of what the pipelines are doing and how safe they are. Pipelines will not spend any money on blowing their own horn or explaining to people or educating people, which is a huge mistake. And I have brought it up in the past, why don't pipelines do this? And the biggest thing is they're shareholder driven. They're there to make money for shareholders. They're not gonna waste money on educating people. In the other end, it would come back tenfold 
they wouldn't have to fight combat these protesters and everything else if they were educated on how safe some of this stuff is. These protesters are out there fighting pipelines and oil and everything, and everything they're carrying or riding in or wearing is produced from oil and gas in the Canadian oil sector, energy sector. They don't understand that because they were not educated on this stuff. And our education system in Canada is not doing any good to, in that respect either. They're not educating because most of the people that are supposed to be doing the educating aren't educated enough to educate the kids. <laughs> it's a problem. It's a very big problem. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I think we uh, we threw some stones there. <laughs> um, and and. In your estimation, would a uh, would a change in government and and maybe uh, more education help help assist the sector? Because I, again, I don't think a lot of people know the what oil and gas energy does to the GDP. I don't think they know what it builds. I don't think they they truly understand what goes through the pipelines and how and how the certification works. And you know that that's all stuff I learned by doing that film was. There's a lot of things that people don't know, and, and it takes a lot of research and, and you know, curiosity to find out. Mm -hmm. No, you're exactly right. And people shouldn't have to do that research. It should be put out there by these companies that are doing the work and own these pipelines and oil companies. They should be putting out there. It shouldn't, you shouldn't have to search for it. But if you want to be educate yourself, you have to in this day and age. And a change of our government would be a great thing because their policies have made it impossible to do business in Canada as far as energy sector, anything. Like the lumber, the, the mining, the basically everything that provides energy or any income to Canada, they're, they're taking a hit because of the policies of this government. And uh, if they educated people, if they got some kind of an education out there, it would definitely help a lot because it, it turns a lot of people's heads. Like I talk to people a lot about about this and uh, they come back with I didn't know that I didn't know that because it's not out there it's it's always just bad news it's never any good news everything that they're if they're doing when they're these companies are successful they spend money to try and reduce their carbon footprint when there's when they're struggling there's no extra money to try and change anything they're just trying to make money and nobody really understands that you just can't switch to electricity. You can't switch to solar. You can't switch to wind power with nothing. Like there has to be money to produce it. And if there is no money, from which usually comes from the ener energy sector in Canada, the biggest amount to switch this stuff over comes from that. If there's no money there, it can't be switched. You can't shut one down and turn on another. Well, hold on, Dean, you just print more. <laughs> yeah, and then we see how that's working. Yeah, it's it's proof right there. I don't need to say any more. So let's leave the energy sector for a minute oh, no. while they pick themselves up. <laughs> um, I, you you uh, recently got a diagnosis last year. You've you've gone through some uh, treatments for cancer. Year before, yeah. Year before, and and so you're going through this process, and. Here, here's what I've gleaned because I've watched this. I've watched this. You, you've gone through uh, this this cancer, and you're a guy that r runs your companies on time, efficiently. You hold people accountable. If if something's not working, you build you build a, a system or process or innovation to help counteract that. And then you go through our healthcare system. Um, and, and I, I know it, well, a, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's you, it's your health, but is there any thoughts surrounding your treatment that you would like to offer future patients, uh, around this? You know, what I have to say here isn't going to be taken lightly by a lot of people, but our healthcare system is hopelessly broken. It, uh. It's been one mistake after another through my whole cancer process. It's it's long from being done. It it has been a long haul. It was misdiagnosed 
to start with. I went in for a simple checkup and it, and it turned out to be after six months, they, they originally it was cancer, but after six months, they finally realized it was cancer. They kept on figuring it was a UTI, which they kept on giving me antibiotics, even though the culture they took every time never showed any, any infection. But they kept on just placating me to the point where all of a sudden they couldn't do it anymore, and they, they did more tests and realized that I had, I had cancer. And then this is when the, when the big things really started. I uh, had found out I had cancer. It was the size of a, basically the size of a dime. It was involved in my bladder when it started. I was a Saskatchewan resident. I had a house in BC, but I was still a Saskatchewan resident because I still have a, a, a home there. We uh, went through surgery for the, was orthoscopic surgery for the, the bladder cancer. I was finished the surgery. The surgeon told me, you're all good. We'll do regular checkups, but you're all good. We got it all and you shouldn't have to worry about it anymore. I uh, got a call three weeks later saying that uh, the cancer I had was very aggressive cancer and they have to go in and remove my bladder and my prostate. There was no more tests, no nothing. They, they scheduled me for surgery. And uh, at that point, the argument started over who was going to pay for it, where Saskatchewan was going to pay for it or BC was going to pay for it. And they recommended that I go back to Saskatchewan because BC government didn't want to pay for my surgery. Even though it's federally funded, Saskatchewan paid for it fully. They didn't. They weren't out anything. And I was told at that point, well, you should go back to Saskatchewan, which would have put me on a waiting list three to six months when I had a very aggressive form of cancer. And uh, so they said, well, well, we'll look into it and see what we can do. This was a six-week ordeal before they made up their mind whether they were going to pay for it or not. When they told me that they didn't want to pay for it, the reason was is they told me is because they want to take care of their own. Like BC, apparently... They're a whole different race of people in Canada. They own, they're different people. They're their own. I, uh, I said, well, I think I'm one of your own. I own a house here. My taxes on my house alone in BC were 70 some thousand dollars a year. I'd been paying that for four years at this point. I said, I think I'm one of your own. I think I qualify as one of your own. So they called me after, the, like I said, the six weeks. They said, yeah, I guess we're going to pay for it and we'll book you in for surgery. So they booked me in for surgery, which was, I, I believe at that point, it was another four weeks. And in that, that amount of time from the first surgery I got, that was a dime size that removed, it had grown to the, a fist size and involved my bladder, my prostate, and my colon at that time. So it was, a, it was a pretty major surgery. It was a big life change for me. I, uh, I've since then, I go in for regular checkups, and since then they found I have, I have cancer has moved to my sternum, and I've also has a cyst in my head. They haven't identified fully as cancer yet. They believe it is, but they, they keep wanting to take this wait-and-see approach, which has been going on for two years. I, there's mistakes made, like there's mistakes made with blood tests, there's mistakes made on diagnosis, there's mistakes made on surgeries. I'm not going to put out any names there, but, or where it's happening, but it's, it's hopelessly broken. I'll, I'll get a appointment for, for, a, a, whether it's for a scan or whether it's for surgery, whatever, I'll get, I'll get a call from five different people. Five different people tell me. Then I'll get three different letters in the mail saying I have this date. And then I'll get an email, emails from a few different people. These people, do we need five people sending the same letter or making the same phone call? This is where our administration is overrun, running over itself. They're not doing their proper communication. We've just got too many people. And it's so top-heavy that everything else is failing with this with this. Uh, medical system we have in Canada. I've had friends that have been treated in Canada that uh, were not getting any of the 
proper answers on their treatment. They went to Mexico and got way better treatment. They got all their answers. They get, actually got saved. I was contemplating going to Mexico. I have been contemplating for over a year now, but I keep getting just enough bits that keep me hanging in here. And basically, over the two years, I just went backwards. I haven't, I haven't got ahead. Whereas I believe if I would have went somewhere else, I would have got better attention and better medical care. And I've dealt with the Mexican medical system. And it, as far as I'm concerned, it's head and shoulders above the Canadian system. I went in to ask for my, my records in the, at the cancer. Well, I phoned my oncologist and I asked for my records, my medical records, so I could take them to Mexico. And uh, I got from my oncologist, yeah, that'll take probably weeks. I said, I want all the records, interior health and the cancer clinic. She says, yeah, yeah, we'll get them all. So I get a call from, and I go in there and I pick up, to pick up my records and the lady in the records at the cancer clinic says, we have your records. And I said, you got the interior health one soon. She says, oh no, we don't have the interior health records. I said, well, it was supposed to be all of them. I said, I was planning on going to Mexico right away and I wanted to take them with me. She says, no, but I can walk you over to the, to the hospital and, and, uh, get that started, getting your records from the hospital. So we're walking over there. And no names or where it was or anything else, but the lady that was walking me over there, she was from another province. She'd been here for a short time in BC. And she says, uh, what are you taking your records for? And I said, well, I want to go to Mexico and get treatment. And the words out of her mouth were, I don't blame you. She said a huge percentage of our patients are asking for the records and they're going offshore to get treated for their cancer because they're not satisfied with it here. She says, I can't deal with it. She says, I'm quitting my job. I'm going back to Saskatchewan. She says, I can't deal with this anymore because it's unbelievable what is going on. So she walks me over to the hospital. I go to the hospital and I said, uh, could I get my records because I'm, I want to go to Mexico? and look for alternative treatment there. She said, that'll be 30 days. I said, 30 days to get your records? She says, yeah. She said, or I said to her, do you not just have a file on your computer? And she says, yeah. I said, so you can't just print it out for me? She says, no, there's a lot of people heady. And I says, you know, if I, I was on a computer, I'm not very good on it, but I pr probably could send out a thousand of them a day to people requesting them. Are you telling me there's 30,000 people that want their records because they're leaving here? She goes, well, it takes time. I said, you know, you're just handing people their death sentence. I said, this is what this whole system has done so far to me. So it's, I believe it's irreparably broken. I don't, I don't see how you can make it better or fix it other than you start right from the top to the bottom and straighten it out. And I, I know one thing that would straighten it out is we had a two-tier health system in Canada. All of a sudden, people would pull up their socks and actually do their job. Right now, they've got nothing to lose. They hold on to their job whether they make mistakes or not. And I'm living proof of it. That's my opinion on the Canadian medical system.